you know, once you see enough patients who are sick, just you just you start to notice the look of death. I, I don't know how else to describe it. That that ashen look when somebody and um, it's not just how they look, but also that you just start to notice they're not quite there anymore. You know, they're not. They have a, a very painful injury, but they're not really re that responsive. They're just kind of moaning or making sounds. They may kind of intermittently answer questions, and just the, their their pallor is gone. You know that it's almost like their life is gone. And um, sometimes we'll discuss this, like how do you tell someone's ashen if they're a person of color, like a darker-skinned Asian person, an African-American person. But when someone bleeds, they have the same look, regardless of what their skin color is. There's there's like a lack of red in their skin or like hue in their appearance. And you start to notice those things. And after doing this for this many years, every time I see a patient like that, I already know right away what's going on with them. You know, it's a matter of finding where it is and how to control it, but you already know that bleeding, even without seeing their vital signs or anything. When they roll in, you, you just know it. Hello, welcome to Medical Murmurs, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. Welcome. I'm talking with Julen Wang. He is a trauma surgeon at Cooper University Hospital in Camden, New Jersey. And uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Do you remember any cases that made you think trauma was right for you? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot. I remember um, as a resident, we had a young man who was uh, you know, at a party and um, I, I don't know, even know if he was involved in the altercation, but there was an altercation. He sustained a gunshot wound in the abdomen. And I remember him coming in in extremis, hypotensive, happy pericode, pericardiac arrest. I remember walking around the trauma bay at Lincoln. It's a separate room from the surgical ER. And I remember walking around the corner and seeing the bottoms of his feet at, on the gurney. And um, once you saw that, you're like, oh, this guy's got to be bleeding because it's just it's a, that same look I was describing before. And, um, you know, everyone's around um, the nurse. They're trying to get IVs and um, IV fluids are hanging. And um, you know, right away we call for blood because we knew he had, he had a gunshot wound. So he had an obvious source of bleeding. Um, his abdomen was a little distended and he was uh, diaphoretic, pale, um, tachypnic, all the things that line up with someone who sustained a major injury. And, he, and when we um, exposed him, he had a gunshot wound right in his mid-abdomen. So you knew that it probably hit a central vascular structure right away. You knew, you knew this guy was in big trouble. And he had a single entry wound? Yeah, he had a single wound. Mm -hmm. No exit? Um, we flipped him. No, he didn't have an exit. And did you just, dis was the plan just straight to the OR? Yeah, was, we're going to get some blood in on him, um, shoot an x-ray. And I, th I think one of the ED residents did a fast exam that was obviously positive. So there was free fluid in the abdomen, which in the setting of trauma is um, almost always blood, especially in a, I think he was like 23 or 24 years old, young man. How long do you think it took from his arrival to when he was able to get to the OR? Probably no more than 10 or 15 minutes. And we were upstairs. There's no, no, no place else he needs to go. He doesn't even need to get imaging. He's hypotensive. He can't get imaging. 
and uh, he has a single gunshot right in the mid abdomen. So, you, you know, that's where he needs to go. He um, had a 10 blade, I remember, and just two or three cuts. He was uh, at the fascia and then one more cut, we were in the abdomen and um, we were met by a rush of blood from the intra-abdominal cavity. And um, the first move we do in trauma for any bleeding patient is to pack all four quadrants of the abdomen. So the right upper quadrants where the liver is, the left upper quadrants generally where the spleen is, and then the um, lower quadrants are where the colon and the um, pericolic gutters are, the pelvis, and um, the right lower quadrants to the right side where the right colon is and the pelvis on that side as well. So we put laparotomy pads in there to kind of um, take up space to um, tamponade the bleeding, which is to kind of compress it down, to slow it down. Um, we didn't know at the time that it was a venous bleed. And um, so the packing is really just a temporizing measure to um, slow down bleeding so that the anesthesiologist can um, catch up with the blood transfusions because this patient's actively bleeding. So without packing, he would just bleed out into open space and eventually, you know, arrest, go into cardiac arrest from blood loss. Uh, once you're able to pack, it seemed like the bleeding slowed down a little bit. And um, we're able to start kind of looking around the areas that weren't packed. And we noticed right away the patient had a, uh, looked like a zone one inframesicolic hematoma, which is basically a, um, a large bulge in the um, central part of the abdomen where the um, aorta and the IVC sit. But below the um, the, um, I guess the blood supply to the colon. So you knew it was a, probably a lower abdominal injury. And based on where the gunshot wound was on the abdomen, which is near his belly button, you knew that the missile probably entered low in the abdomen. And seeing that hematoma made us realize that, um, that he was bleeding from a central vascular structure. He kind of knew that ahead of time, but that just confirms it. Um, so, uh, we unpack the lower part of the abdomen and get access to that and um, kind of push the small intestine out of the way. And we started mobilizing the right colon, which is to kind of take the attachments of the right colon off of the, the back of the abdomen, because that's the first step to removing the, um, the kind of the covering over the blood vessels. And once we started exposing that, we were met with a rush of blood from the IVC injury. And then we visualized the injury and knew that was happening. So my attending asked for me and I think the medical student to pick up a sponge on a stick, which is a ring forcep uh, with a, um, like a wad of gauze at the end of it. And he wanted me to compress above where the bleeding was and one of the medical students to compress below where the bleeding was to kind of isolate the flow into that area. To so you're compressing, you're compressing the IVC, IVC. the main yeah. blood vessel that returns blood from the whole lower half of the body. That's right. That's right. And um, he had, you could see his aorta, there's a pulsatile, but the flow is obviously weak from blood loss. So once we were able to compress it, the bleeding slowed down and um, we were able to uh, have the anesthesiologist give a few more units of blood. And uh, once you were able to catch up and get his blood pressure kind of to an acceptable level, which is in trauma, usually 90 to 100 uh, millimeters of mercury systolic pressure, then um, he attempted to dissect out the surrounding tissue around the IVC injury so we would periodically kind of let go of our compression to see where the bleeding was so you could find out where the, exactly we need to go. And he dissected the IVC free. And at this, at this time, the vascular surgeon came in. She was called in. Um, and uh, once everything was dissected free, we, we saw the extent of the injury. First, we noticed that, noted that the order wasn't injured, which is good because with both of them are injured, the amount of bleeding you would get is probably uncontrollable and the patient would surely die from that. 
um, we were able to isolate the injury in the IVC. And there was like a big loss of a big section of the IVC, large enough that it probably wasn't possible to just sew it back, the hole closed. The, the distance between the, um, the free ends of the injured vessel were too great. Um, and the patient was also still hypotensive and still pretty sick. So the decision was made to ligate the IVC, which is basically to, to tie it off. And um, this can be done in certain instances if the patients are really sick and there's no time to, or you're not able to um, do a formal repair of the vena cava. Patients tolerate that pretty well because there's collateral flow. So they develop collateral flow around that. And um, also just, you don't have time. They, they can't be in the operating room for that long because as patients lose blood, they become cooler, they become coagulopathic. So everything starts to bleed and it becomes impossible to control without packing the abdomen off and getting them warmed up and resuscitated in the ICU. So the decision was made by um, my attending and chief resident to uh, ligate the IVC. So the um, open ends of the uh, injury were oversewn with a stitch to control bleeding. And um, that whole area was packed with um, gauze and the patient's abdomen was actually left open uh, to f allow for um, the bowel to swell and everything else from, from the injuries that he had. And um, we also found some bowel injuries too, which we kind of closed with sutures to control contamination so he wouldn't get floridly septic while he was being resuscitated in the ICU. And um, long story short, he went to the ICU, was sick for a while, got resuscitated, warmed back up, and then we came back to the operating room the next day. And um, given the, the um, degree of injury, it was decided that we would just keep the IVC ligated because it's a low flow system. Refixing that or like reanastomosing it would probably just result in clot formation, which would thrombose the IVC off anyways. So they thought just leaving it ligated would be fine. And um, the patient did you know, suffer some of the sequelae of having their IVC ligated. I remember he developed a lower extremity swelling. And, but as collateral vessels or flow formed around the area where the IVC is ligated, the swelling went down and he was able to get up and walk and he regained bowel function after we, we did reanastomose his bowel injuries. Um, the second, or I believe the second or third take back surgery we did for him and we got his abdomen closed. And, um, you know, I think having the gift of youth on his side and probably some luck and skilled trauma surgeons, uh, he made a full recovery and ended up going back to his work. And, you know, we talked, we saw him two or three months, two or three months later. And, um, you know, he's very thankful. He's a nice person. And I think that's when I saw that, that's when I really, really realized how good of a job trauma would be and how much I really wanted to do it. And um, I think that and my other experiences uh, helped me make that decision. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. Did you have any history of doing complicated things with your hands prior to surgery that were a challenge? Not so much. You know, my, my father, uh, when, he, when he was in Taiwan, he was a teacher. But he was always uh, very good with his hands. And when he came over here, you know, I think with the language issues and, and things that, like that, um, you know, he could never do that again. Uh, but he was always very, very mechanically inclined and great with his hands. He ended up becoming a machinist and working as a tool and die maker at a small uh, marine engineering firm in Michigan. And um, before that, you know, he actually had gone to auto mechanics school and had fixed cars for a while. So we still did a lot of our own, like, 
work around the house. And that was kind of a time when we, when I was growing up, we were pretty poor. So it was hard to um, just buy new things. So whatever broke in the house or whatever needed repair in the house, he would be doing it. So I kind of just followed him around and did those things. So I, I worked a lot with my hands, like tool, understanding tools and things like that. I, I, I knew it pretty well, even before I did surgery. So I, I guess in that way, that was always part of my life. And um, as I got older and things got a little bit better in the household in terms of like our financial situation, um, you know, we didn't do that as much anymore, but it was always a part of me because I grew up with it. So could you tell me a bit about, firstly, your background and how you decided to go into medicine? Well, um, I grew up in Michigan. Uh, I immigrated to the United States in 1979 from the island of Taiwan, just mm -hmm. off the sh coast of uh, China. And, um, you know, I grew up most of my life in Michigan. Um, you know, I didn't really have any uh, thoughts about uh, wanting to go to, into medicine at the time when I was growing up. And I started out um, as in, in thinking about doing engineering. I actually originally wanted to study military history, but my uh, parents put the kibosh on that right away. So um, throughout college, I realized a couple of things. Number one is my math's really not good enough to do engineering. And um, as uh, my college career went on at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, my interest in the biosciences grew. So I tried my hand at working in the lab, maybe doing some genetics uh, research. And um, you know, that didn't quite do it for me. I thought it was a little too esoteric. And it's kind of ironic now looking at medicine, how much more uh, of a, a genetic component there is to modern medical care, um, how those two roads kind of cross paths again. But um, you know, after working in the lab, I, still had the keen interest in the biosciences. And I thought to myself, well, what am I going to do with my life? I'm, uh, you know, four years out of undergraduate, my undergraduate degree. And um, one of my friends was, I was talking to him one day and he was like, did you ever think about doing medicine? I'm like, you know, that's actually not a bad idea. I started looking into it, did a couple um, of the prereqs I didn't have to, to apply for medical school. And then after that, I applied first to U.S. medical schools. Um, especially the ones in the area around Michigan. Didn't really want to leave the area so much at that time. And um, after being waitlisted, having interviews, being waitlisted a couple of times, uh, my, my friend, the same thing happened to him as well. And he had gone to St. George's in uh, the Caribbean, Grenada. And he's like, you know, it's not that bad here. You should consider coming here. And if you still really have it in your heart to do medicine. And at that point, my, my conviction to do it was much stronger. So I took him up on his offer and applied, got in and... Uh, off I went. In uh, St. George's University in Grenada, West Indies. So what was it about trauma that drew you? Um, again, I think um, there's a common theme. I, I like surgery for the fact that you get to use your hands. Um, and I think trauma is an extension of that because... Um, you make rapid decisions and, um, and, and someone, and this goes back to the case I saw as a medical student, you know, someone's dying, you, you like reverse their course and get them better. You know, I think that that's, was very appealing. I like the decision-making, the decision-making environment. It's very rapid and, um, there's no, um, you know, there's no fluff or anything to it. You just need to make all the decisions that need to be made to sustain this patient's life, to get them to the operating room or get them to, interventional radiology or wherever they need to go to have their um, problem addressed. That really appealed to me. 
And I also like the fact that um, you just took care of whoever's in front of you. You didn't have to see if they had insurance or do these other things. I, I really dislike that part of medicine a lot. I, I, I wish I wasn't a part of medicine. People just got taken care of for the problems that they had instead of having to get referred somewhere else because of insurance status or, or what, whatnot. I really dislike that. So I really like that part of trauma as well, to care of everyone, regardless of who they were or, or like, um, you know, whether they could pay or not, whether they were undocumented um, alien or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. I think my perception of what medicine is, is um, healing with your mind and with your hands. And um, the uh, healing with your hands component isn't as prevalent in internal medicine. And it's a great field. I have no, no, nothing against it. I think the people who go into it, they, they do a great job. Yeah, but it just, just didn't seem to have it for me. I think the pace of it wasn't as um, conducive to my thoughts about how medicine should be. But surgery fulfilled all those things. I think mostly the, the work and the pace, the, the non-procedural aspects of it, even though GI itself is a very heavy procedure-based field, it tends to be the same procedures over and over again. And they don't tend to be complex, as complex as a surgical procedure would be. And that really appealed to me, the complexity of surgery and, and the pace at which it moved. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. I wonder if you could take me through to a case, maybe a more recent case that has stuck with you, and what seemed like the early decision-making and how things shifted, how it played out. Yeah, so um, we had a recent case. Uh, it was a bad um, motorcycle accident, and um, the patient comes in, and um, oddly, um, doesn't look like there's anything wrong. There's not a scratch on him, but he has the look of someone who's bleeding. And and one of my favorite lines is, "There's three reasons why patients uh, die from trauma." And it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of true at the same time. Uh, bleeding, sanguination, and hemorrhage. Right? Bleeding is almost always the most common cause. It's it's the most common cause of death in in the trauma patient. And um, as a trauma surgeon, you are almost pathologically inclined to look for bleeding. And so we go through our, um, our ABC disease, our uh, primary assessment of the trauma patient and uh, secure his airway because his mental status isn't great. So perhaps he has a head injury and um, we stabilize him, get blood into him. Can you sort of maybe start with, you know, what you were told about the accident and what he looked like when you walk in the room? What you kind of, you know, the initial impression. Yeah, so we're told that um, he was in a bad more, uh, motorcycle accident. He was hit by a car and um, he was found like 50 or 60 feet away from his motorcycle, like ejected from his motorcycle um, on the road. Uh, no, no, not much blood loss, any, no blood loss at the scene. Uh, at first, a little combative and then more somnolent, uh, more, more sleepy. And um, his vitals in the field, his heart rate, I remember, was in the 120s, but his blood pressure at the time was like 120 over 80. And, um, and he came in, and when he arrived, he looked, had that ashen look to him, like he had lost some blood. And so right away, I'm thinking, this, this guy's losing blood. Even though his blood pressure is normal, he just hasn't registered the change yet, I think. You know, he hasn't lost enough to, he's lost enough to have, start looking like pale, but 
hasn't lost enough to drop his pressure. And he's also a younger person, so he has some reserve. So he's able to kind of clamp his vessels down and maintain his blood pressure longer, I think, than someone who's older or like more debilitated. And um, we went through our paces uh, trying to figure out where his blood loss was. <clears throat> and we do this by getting a chest x-ray, a pelvic x-ray, and a fast exam, which is an ultrasound of the abdomen and the heart to see if there's any blood around the heart which is uncommon in blunt trauma, but what's more common is having blood around the liver or whatever on the ultrasound. And um, oddly, the first ultrasound was negative for any free fluid in the abdomen. And as we had him longer, his blood pressure started to go down. He dropped to from 120s to 90s and then to 80s. And so that triggered us to give blood through his IVs that were placed by one of our nurses. And as we resuscitated him back up, we um, did a fast exam again, and um, still negative. And he's a young person who's never had an operation before, a normal body habitus, so it should be a fast that we would see fluid in. If you've got someone that you're convinced has lost blood, because as you've said, the pressure's going down, their heart rate is elevated, and they have that gray look to them, the abdomen is often one of the prime suspects yeah. and the other areas would be? Um, the abdomen, the chest, the pelvis, which is I think a kind of a forgotten source of blood loss, but, but it, it's a potential space. But if you bleed from your pelvic vessels, it can create a, a space uh, where, where patients can lose quite a bit of blood. Um, long bones, the femur in particular, and um, the field, which is like any, any cuts or injuries that could result in blood loss outside of the hospital that may stop from like vasospasm, the blood vessels spasming down, which you may not notice active bleeding when they come in, but they've lost a ton of blood in the field. So a common question we ask our um, EMS practitioners is, was there a lot of blood loss in the field? You know, and, and in this guy's case, I mean, there were no cuts on his out external body. So there was no blood loss in the field. You, you could see that. And because you've done a physical exam from head to toe, at this point, you're pretty convinced he doesn't have a, f a, a femur fracture. Yeah. So he's not bleeding into his thigh and you've examined his pelvis and yeah, we've gotten, we, at this point we had x-rays of his pelvis and the pelvis looked pretty normal. And, um, we, uh, had a chest x-ray and the x-ray looked pretty normal as well. So we knew we had ruled out most of those injuries there. So the only place we hadn't ruled out an injury is in the abdomen. And so I ordered my resident to do another fast exam and I sat there and watched him do it. And a lot of our, um, one, uh, one group of residents that rotates with us are the EM residents. And they're extremely good at doing these exams. They're very efficient. I think they, uh, they basically pushed the ultrasound technology forward more than surgeons have. And we've kind of adopted it on their coattails, so to speak. And um, I watched him, he's a really, really good resident. I watched him do it and it was, it was clearly negative. And I actually did a few of the views myself and uh, looked negative as well. So at this point with the resuscitation that we were giving him, um, he recovered his blood pressure back to 120, 130 systolic. And um, I made the decision to take him to a CT scan because we didn't find a distinct source of bleeding. But the suspicion is that's in the abdomen. It's just somehow it's either in the retroperitoneum or we're not getting a good look with the ultrasound. So he went to scan. And do you mind, before you go to scan, I mean, I think our specialties, emergency medicine in my case, and, and trauma surgery in yours, uh, 
think hard before we send a trauma patient who seems sick to the CT scan. Yeah, it's a, it's a big break in the patient's care because the relative safety, they leave the relative safety of the trauma bay and they go off to a scanner. And if you've ever seen a CT scanner, they're logistically, it's a very quick study. It's like a five or 10 minute study. So it doesn't seem like as much time, but getting the patients there, it takes five, it's, it's near us, but it takes five or 10 minutes to get them there, get them on table and um, get the scans done. It's probably like a 20, 30 minute process. And, and we're very efficient at doing them. We run do hundreds of scans a night. So our tech, technicians in this CT scanning uh, room are really, really good. And even with that, I think the fastest we can get a patient in and out of there is like 15, 20 minutes, probably. So there's there's quite a bit of time and it doesn't seem like much time, but it's an eternity in trauma. Because remember in trauma, they talk about the golden hour. So that's one quarter to one third of the golden hour. Not to mention the fact that the patient took time to come here. So now you're getting near your your golden hour where you have to make diagnoses and figure out what's wrong with the patient. And um, when we scanned him, he had this terrible uh, spleen and liver injury that um, the, the liver, I think majority of blood loss probably from a liver injury and uh, a lot of bleeding in the posterior part of the liver near the uh, retropathic uh, IVC, but not quite in it based on our scan. And um, oddly, there was, wasn't fluid around that area of the the kidney, which I, to this day, I don't understand, but you know, we have the saying in this field that sometimes the patient doesn't read the book. <laughs> so, uh, from there seeing that, and then his pressure started to kind of drift down again, we knew that we need to go to the operating room and unlike the spleen, the liver obviously is essential in an adult. You can't just remove it. So our plan was to pack the liver with, with, um, gauze to kind of compress it down to stop this bleed and to address the spleen by, with a splenectomy because it's a grade three spleen. So there's active bleeding in there as well. So I think the hypotension was driven from primarily the liver, but a combination of both the organs bleeding. And um, so I took him to the operating room, took care of the liver. There was also like a um, bowel injury as well. So we controlled contamination and packed the liver. And so when you open up the fascia, what do you see? Blood, you know, blood just pulls out of the abdomen, swelling up everywhere. And um, the same maneuver, we always do we pack all four quadrants with gauze but while you're packing you kind of get a feel of things and you, you start feeling the uneven surfaces of the liver that's injured and um so we pack the liver down um, really well and um we pack the spleen down as well and since we knew that since we had a scan we had some idea of what was going on um, most liver injuries are managed with packing and allowing the organ to kind of stop bleeding on its own so once you pack the liver it looked like most of the bleeding stopped so we went up to the spleen, packed that as well, and we unpacked since the spleen generally isn't essential to prevent it from re-bleeding. We usually do it, if we're in the abdomen, we usually do a splenectomy. So he had a grade three, grade four splenic injury with active bleeding. So we did a splenectomy, controlled that, ran the bowel, which is kind of our term for looking through all the small bowel, making sure there's no injuries, looking at the large bowel. And and that means basically passing the bowel, which yeah. is a tubular structure through your hands. Yeah, through your hands and flipping it over and looking to make sure there's not a tear in the bowel itself where there's bile that can leak out and cause contamination and sepsis in patients. And the big deal here is that inside someone's abdomen is and has to be a sterile space. Yeah. And if the bowel has a, a breach in it, it's different from some other organ being breached. That's right. Um, patients will tolerate blood in their abdomen fine. They won't have any issues with that. But if they have bile from enteric contents, that what's in the bowel in there, 
within six to 12 hours, they're, they're gonna get really, really sick. And so that contamination needs to be controlled. The other thing we look for in trauma, Ashley, is um, a disruption of the blood supply of the bowel because the blood supply travels up a, a curtain of fat, so to speak, that's connected to the bottom of the bowel. And if there's a tear in that fat and the blood, the blood supply to that section of the bowel is disrupted, over the next six to 12 hours, that section will die. And once that section of bowel dies, then it'll perforate and the patient will get sick again. It'll happen in a delayed fashion, which is like very, very difficult to manage because a lot of times the patient's abdomens will be closed. And when they get sick, they'll present very much like somebody who has a surge response, a systemic inflammatory response to trauma or injury. And it, so the, the diagnosis is usually, is usually delayed and since the abdomen has been opened before, if it's not addressed, there's still air and free fluid in the abdomen. So those are the telltale signs you look for, for bowel injury. But since you've already opened the abdomen, it's hard to tell whether it's from the bowel or from the abdomen having been previously opened. So those are definitely things you don't want to miss. So this is the kind of injury that this patient had. And so we um, resected or basically removed that suction of bowel that had no blood flow. You can already tell it's starting to look different from the other bowel there. And with the... Um, with the thought that we would come back in 24 hours time to unpack the liver and make sure it stopped bleeding and, um, and fix that bowel injury. And as it turns out, after surgery for liver injuries, we generally send them to interventional radiology, even with the packing in and have them, um, colloquially we call it squirt the liver, but basically they ingest, inject IV contrast into the liver and look for any arterial bleeding which he had a little branch, which they end up embolizing. And um, over the course of the next few days, the patient slowly recovered. And um, eventually we took him back to the operating room, I think 24 hours later and uh, unpacked his liver. And um, there was no longer bleeding there with the embolization and the compression of bleeding had stopped. We left a few drains in because the liver not only has blood in there, but it also produces bile and it's very irritating for the abdomen. So we leave some drains to kind of address that. And as the liver heals, it heals itself. So you don't really need to do much to that. And um, eventually, I think he had some lower extremity. He ended up having like a tibial injury uh, fracture and he ended up going to the operating room for that and uh, ended up going home and did okay. I haven't seen him since this happened more recently, but. Uh, hopefully he comes back to visit us if he's doing well. I have unfortunately occasionally had cases where it got away, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was wondering if you could talk about one of those cases, um, you know, not necessarily one where there was anyone at fault, but just one where you went in thinking maybe you could save someone. And as you went on, it slipped away from you. Yeah, I think um, everybody who takes care of someone who's acutely ill probably has stories that um, you know, pertain to this. And um, as one of my mentors said, but I'm sure it's not something he thought of, but uh, he's like every, you know, every surgeon has a little graveyard that they visit from time to time. I think it's not, it's not good to dwell on those things, but it's also not good to not remember because I think there's a certain amount of education that you um, can garner from good cases and a lot of education can garner from bad cases as well. Or things that didn't work out the way you thought they would. Um, and I think remembering those lessons uh, is important for taking care of your future patients, but also for um, just respecting the sacrifice of, 
of like another patient that was made for whatever reason. Yeah, I think, I mean, part of what I do here is acute care surgery as well. And um, there are a lot of patients who come in with, you know, um, bad surgical problems like bowel perforations who are so physiologically ill, even if you're able to fix that problem, they, they physiologically ultimately can't recover from the septic component of their, uh, their um, insult, so to speak. Um, but I remember a case pretty well as an attending of a um, person who was sent over with um, what was thought to be perhaps a um, splenic injury. Um, patient had a really remote history of falling and um, was a not healthy um, older uh, woman, I remember. Uh, and um, when she came over here, she was first seen at the outside hospital probably like 10 or 11, 12 hours prior to her arrival here. And um, I just remember uh, thinking to myself when they called me and said, this patient needs to come over to you and because um, we don't know what's going on with her. So uh, I remember thinking to myself, okay, you know, um, we'll, we'll take her over here and do what we need to do. And um, long story short, she came over here and by the time she came over here, she had that same look of anyone who's bleeding. And it was obvious that she was bleeding and um, her pressure was really low. She was kind of also, I think, peri arrest from blood loss. And so um, we took her up and, uh, you know, did her surgery and um, realized right away it has, she had nothing to do with trauma or spleen. She had ruptured like an aneurysm in her um, superior mesenteric artery. And before we could even get like uh, control that or get like the vascular surgeon here to help us with what we could do, she had probably lost so much blood along the way. It was like an unsalvageable situation and we lost her, you know, and, um, and that was a really difficult case to, to deal with as a junior attending, you know. So I remember that case pretty well too. What did you see when you opened your abdomen? It's blood, blood everywhere. So you don't see where the injury is. And then as you start exploring and looking, you know, then you realize where the injury was. And um, that's a very, very difficult place to access. I mean, I think uh, people operate on the superior to artery electively, but there's no blood in the field necessarily. They, they may expose the aneurysm or do a procedure there, a bypass or, or whatnot but having to operate on it with a big hematoma in the area and uh, active bleeding coming from that area, that was uh, very difficult. So you put in the packs as per usual. Yeah. You suctioned out or evacuated the clot. Yeah, suctioned out, evacuated the clot, and there's a large, large hematoma. So we started out by moving the left colon over because the hematoma seemed higher, and to expose the higher part of the aorta, you have to move the left colon, not the right, as opposed to the IVC, a lower part of the inferior vena cava. And um, we're able to um, expose the base of the vessel, but um, in terms of where the bleeding was coming from, it was coming from higher up, and it was a rupturing aneurysm. So the tissue there was very friable and, and thin. It wasn't like a normal vessel that just had a cut in there. That would have been a lot easier to fix. This was really difficult because the aneurysms are quite large, and um, trying to find the ends of where the vessel is bleeding from was actually very difficult. And so we called, you know, called vascular surgery to help us. Um, kind of at the beginning of the case. And they they got here in pretty timely fashion, but I think from the loss the patient had and the fact that um, she was a little older and probably had other health problems, I don't think her heart could take that amount of um, injury, amount of uh, hypotension. So she went to cardiac arrest and died. 
are listening to Medical Murmurs. You know, a question that often comes up amongst, uh, I would say, non-doctors as well as just non-surgeons is, how do you know if a surgeon is good? I think there's a public perception that, you know, good doctors are like cock, cocky or like, like ultra confident. I, you know, I, I think sometimes the best doctors are the ones that relate to you the best and they act like a normal human being. Most of the best clinicians I've worked with are like that. You know, I've worked with a few clinicians who are like super cocky, who are good at what they do, but I would say that's generally exception, not the rule. Let it be comforting if we can judge the book by its cover. I think you can somewhat. You get an idea of how the, how the person is. I, I think that's more important than like all these scores that are out there, ratings or, you know, because I, I know for a fact I, I'll look through sometimes and I know someone who's a good clinician, they may not have like the best patient satisfaction scores. And I'll know a bad clinician, they have great scores. I think that's one of those things where if you pay a lot of attention to it, you can, you can make those however way you want. So it's, it's not really, a, I don't feel that as, a, as good of a way of judging. I think word of mouth, your impression of when you meet them, I think those are the best things. How do you deal with it? Um, we have services here that help, help us deal with it. Um, Human Resources has like a, um, like a team that will come and talk to the caretakers or uh, the, the um, trauma team that took care of a difficult case. Um, I think, and I think you get over from, uh, you know, going back to your support system, your family, and that's a big part of it. You know, I tell my residents all the time, um, you know, the ideal job is the job that you take that you like what you do and um, what makes the job work is having a good family life. That's extremely important. I think not having a good family life, even if you're, you have the best job in the world, it, um, it doesn't, it, it'll make the job seem like it's the worst job ever. And I think this is part of the reason why, because that's your support system. I think a lot of physicians don't realize that or they may realize it, but never say it, but that's what keeps you sane. And I always tell my residents, you know, like I care about my family because Number one, you should, if you decide you're going to spend your life with somebody or you're going to be someone's father then or mom, you should care about those things. And the second thing is, uh, you know, you're only a doctor for a set period of time. After that, I'm, I'm always going to be my, my daughter's dad. So that's never going to change. So you should take care of those things. I think, I think that's where the field could change for the better. And I think even though I hear this from my older attendings a lot, they're like, oh, in this generation, they, they care about their lifestyle and, and everything. I, I think you should, you should care about those things. If you care about those things like a human being, you'll act more like a human being to your patients. It doesn't mean that you're less dedicated to their care. It's that you have more balance in your life, right? Your family life is balanced with your work life. So if you're happy in your family life, you tend to be happier in your work life. I really, I really believe that. I think that's really important. I try to tell my residents and medical students that all the time because because they, they they get to the decision making process that I was in like uh, 10, 15 years ago. And um, they they may be at a different point in their life. Maybe they're not married yet or like they, they don't have any kids. And, and so they don't understand how important that is. I try to tell them that because I think that's what mentoring is. It's not like telling them, oh, yeah, surgery is great because you get to operate on people all day. I think it's, it's you tell them that, but you also tell them the, uh, the flip side to it. You don't want to be the reason why they don't do something. You give them such a bad experience. They don't never want to do the field because of the experience they had with you. But you also want to give them an honest look at 
what your profession is like. And one of the, the most important things I think they need to learn because for someone who's, I mean, you know this because you're a physician as well, they're so like goal oriented, they forget about the other things in their life that are important as well. I think sometimes doctors forget that, that how important it is to have a good family life and how, how much that interplays with your professional life. It's very important. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk. It's been fascinating. No problem. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. This is Medical Murmurs. If you're a medical student or just interested in medical careers, there is another episode with the same guest where we focus on career questions such as how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. It's called Medical Murmurs Medical Student Edition. Check it out.